Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm your host, Ty Kersley. This week's show will discuss white supremacy in the military. Uh, what some polls from U.S. troops have revealed. We'll go over what the Pentagon can do about it. And I'm also going to talk with an old Air Force friend of mine, Omar, about how black veterans have been targeted throughout our country's history. But first, the in memoriam. In remembrance of Satnam Singh, 65 years old. Satnam Singh was shot and killed on February 28, 2021, inside Super Grocery the store he owned and operated. Acquaintances recalled the store owner as a personable, engaging man who took interest in his customers. I was devastated. I was shocked, resident Bonnie Adams said of Singh's death. This is a store that kept the community together. Kevin Richard, who also lives in the neighborhood, remembers that Singh would sometimes forgive customers if they didn't have quite enough to cover the cost of their purchase. People don't do that anymore, said Richard who organized a vigil outside Super Grocery as a way to remember Singh. What's more, Singh, known as Sap by many, would really engage with his customers, not just exchange routine pleasantries. It was a full-on conversation every time we went in there. He was super friendly, Richard said. The outpouring from those who knew Singh or visited his store has been tremendous. His family issued a statement thanking the public and the police for their efforts to investigate the matter. It is with grateful hearts that we thank each and every one of you for the love and support you have shown our family. Thank you to our extended family, friends, customers, and the community of Ogden. We have been overwhelmed by your outpouring of kindness and generosity, said the statement. The statement called on the public to emulate Singh's outlook. 21 years of a community legacy represents a lifetime of tradition, faith, honor, and love. We encourage everyone to continue Satnam Singh's legacy of love. He truly made all people who crossed his path his people. The day of the vigil, Pamela Jensen was on hand outside Super Grocery with a rose. The store remains closed, corned off with yellow police tape, and well-wishers have placed balloons, candles, teddy bears, and more outside it in remembrance of Singh. Every time I came in, I said, Hi, neighbor, said Jensen, recalling how Singh would help her carry her purchases to her car. He would say, Hi, neighbor. He is the man. I loved him. He did not deserve this. Satnam Singh, we remember you. Once again, you're listening to WBAI. This is Radio Gag, and we're covering white supremacy in the military. Since the Capitol riots on January 6th of this year, we're finding out more and more about who was there. I wanted to cover the percentage of people who were charged. Um, and how many of them had U.S. military ties. At the end of January, NPR compiled a list of individuals that were facing federal or District of Columbia charges in connection with the events on January 6th. Out of 140 charged at that time, a review of military records, social media accounts, court documents, and news reports indicate at least 27 of those charged, or nearly 20%, have served or are currently serving in the U.S. military. To put that number in perspective, only 7% of all American adults are military veterans, according to the U.S. Census. 
I'm going to review this poll that the Military Times posted last year. Uh, they surveyed 1,600 active duty Military Times subscribers last fall, and they wanted to know about their views on political leaders, global threats, and domestic policy priorities. In 2019, they found that 36% of troops who responded have seen evidence of white supremacist and racist ideologies in the military, which is a rise from the year before, which is only 22%. Also in the poll, enlisted members were more likely than officers to witness the extremist views. Minorities were significantly more likely to report cases of racist behavior than whites. Overall, troops who responded to the poll cited white nationalists as a greater national security threat than both domestic terrorism with the connection to Islam, as well as immigration. Now, the Defense Department doesn't centrally track troops who have been investigated for domestic terrorism or extremism, uh, and neither do any of the services. Uh, it makes it difficult to really see how big the problem is. So the Pentagon ordered a 60-day stand-down. Uh, this is from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. He called on the services to conduct a 60-day stand-down on the issue of extremism in the military. Now, this is prompted by the January 6th attack on the Capitol and other subsequent reports of both active duty and former service members attending a rally calling to overturn the 2020 election and the riot that ensued. The two-month window would allow enough time for units to strategize and schedule how they'll stand down rather than declaring a specific day for everyone to do the same work. We're in the middle of that 60 days now. So I wanted to bring my friend Omar on the air. Uh, we wanted to talk about the problem of white supremacy in the military, but also what he thought of the 60-day stand-down and how the Pentagon can resolve these issues. Uh, as I've mentioned on this show before, I'm retired Air Force, and I have a uh, fellow Air Force friend uh, joining me, Omar. Hello, everyone. My name is Omar. I'm an Air Force veteran. I served for 12 years on active duty. Uh, glad to be here today. Thanks for uh, for uh, coming and uh, and us talking about this. We have been stationed together twice, I think, right? And we bumped into each other somewhere else as well along the way. Yeah, I mean, but but the funny thing is that we've known each other since I mean the early '90s or mid '90s. We were both on honor guard mm -hmm. uh, when we met. So, did this surprise you when these numbers were coming out when you saw the riots? How, how did you feel about? that in general? What was your, your take on what was going on? I'm honestly just disappointed. I mean, I'm a country boy from the South, being originally from North Carolina. And like you were saying, our first base, we were stationed in South Carolina. And so um, I just remember my third week in the Air Force at my first base. going out into the, walking out into the compound in the yard and hanging over by the smoke pit with all the fellas from, you know, back in the break room. And I would walk over there by them and I could just tell they were up to no good and they were going to say something to me when I came up. But this was like, this was four white guys. And when I came up, they just started telling black jokes. How, how old were you at the time? I was 19. So yeah, when you first started in the Air Force. When I first started, yep. And that was the interesting thing. Being from North Carolina, 
where I'm from there, it, I wasn't, racism was something I already knew about. You know, we just knew, we knew our place in my town. It's still a small town, small community uh, growing up. But now being in South Carolina, it wasn't that I was immune to it, but it was almost like I didn't get offended by it in the same way maybe somebody else would have. Because I grew up in a town where people called me names. I could say that um, when they were telling these jokes, I decided to walk away. For one thing, these guys outranked me. And I was new to the Air Force. Like I said, it was my third week at that base, still learning the rank structure. I knew they outranked me. And what could I do? What could I say? You know, so I just chose to walk away. And, but it didn't make it right. It didn't make me feel any type of way. I just knew to stay away from those guys. How about also one of the things that I've noticed, um, uh, armed protests and, and so forth in gear. How do you feel about an individual that you know is not in uniform, but they are what seems to be perceived as fighting for uh, a white cause, armed in the streets nowadays, where we would never would have seen that twenty years ago? I don't. I mean, it's disappointing. That's all I can say. Like for these guys that go into the military just to get the training and come out just to hurt people or scare people. You know, it's, it's, it's disappointing because, you know, they, they pump us with so much, quote unquote, forced patriotism while you're in there. You got to do this. You got to, you know, reveille, taps, all these things you got to be around. And how do they ignore all of that and know that their intention is to go in there just to get the, the gun training, to go in there just to get the, you know, the combat training, the martial arts training, the organization? I mean, can you look at the tactics that they're using? These are special ops tactics and stuff that they're, they're talking about and just openly, you know, they're just passing around like it's candy. And it's just it's just interesting and disappointing. Did you see do you see any of the same kind of structure for terrorists as I do? I constantly look and see, oh, I know how they were recruited. Oh, yep. I know why they're involved, because I had to study the exact same thing, just different country and different rules. Yep. And the same thing, they're hiding behind Christianity the same way these radical groups in the Middle East hide behind their religion. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's such a parallel to it. And it's happening right here and people turning a blind eye and say, oh, that's not what it is. No, I know exactly what you mean. And that's sort of what I want to talk about is anytime someone dismisses, oh, they're just kids. Wow. All right. No, you don't know those guys. They're harmless. You were telling me at one point that your supervisors were almost like putting you in danger. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was at my first base. And my first base, I, I worked as a vehicle operator. Uh, so bus driver, heavy equipment driver, forklifts, tow trucks. And I don't know why that was my job. I went in open general. And as you know, I scored high enough to be an in intelligence, but they made me a bus driver. And one thing I realized is honestly, I found out how the game works. You know, in the Pentagon, you, up at DOD, there's a there's a coordinator for each branch of service that their job is to divvy out the jobs. So once you once they see, once you take the ads, all they see is paperwork. 
So on the paperwork, it's just black and white. They see your score, your race, and your name. And I'll tell you, like, most of the black people work in warehouse jobs, work in, in, in the hotels and, you know, in the dining hall, and work in truck drivers, bus drivers, supply. And like I said, you know where I ended up at. Why didn't they let me start there? So yeah, you've you cross trained um, into intelligence. Yeah. Well, I tell you, like, so in that job in transportation, uh, truck driving isn't a job; it's a lifestyle. So you have a certain type of people that drive trucks. I wasn't one, but you know, you just have that type of macho male, hyper masculine, uh, <laughs> you know. But it's just a certain type. And I was definitely a lot more intellectual than I was hands-on. So these type of guys would see me and, like I said, they would just pick on me. And one of them was my supervisor. And he didn't train me. He wouldn't let people train me correctly. And I swore that this man just wanted to kill me. And I don't know what it was. Not giving me the same safety lessons. Um, I remember one day I was backing uh, a tractor trailer up to the fence. And I had to back it in between two other trailers. I wasn't good at it. And That's I never okay. forget looking over at the smoke pit and my supervisor, the staff sergeant, he's standing there pointing and laughing at me. And all the other guys in my rank are standing over there pointing and laughing too. Versus getting his ass in the truck and teaching me how to do it. You know, and I'm just sitting there feeling so little at that. How did it affect you? moving out of that environment after you'd been in it? Well, honestly, I had to find any way to promote myself out of there. So honestly, Alnagar was a way out. It was a way I didn't have to be in that yard every day with those guys. It was a way I didn't have to be hearing black jokes and expected to like them. And if I don't laugh, now all of a sudden, I'm worried about what they're going to do if they're going to mark me down on my performance report. They said I had I no late. idea it was that bad for you then. That's I had bad. no idea. It was that did bad. You, did you, and you, you wouldn't talk to anyone about that at the time? No, I didn't know who to call, talk to. These guys outranked me. All I knew, I had to find out, a, I had to find a way to get out of there. And that's why I did Honor Guard. And I actually tried to stay on Honor Guard an extra year because I just didn't want to go back to work. Right. And then you came to Korea. Then I came to Korea. And I showed you it was a big party <laughs> with the gas mask on. Big- Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. Um... Okay. And let me tell you a story real quick. Sure. Tuesday afternoon, I'm walking back from lunch, licking on the ice cream cone, <laughs> walking back towards Brooklyn College, and all of a sudden, I'm stopped and frisked for the third time that I lived in New York since I lived in New York City. And I'll tell you honestly, the most that was honestly most one of the most humiliating times of my life because there I was going to, back to school. I had a book bag on my back with my camera equipment and books. They took everything out of my bag, all of my cameras and everything. Right as this is around the time when the high school was letting out. So all of these kids are coming by taking pictures of me on their cell phone because I'm out being stopped by the cops and they got all this stuff out on the ground. And like I said, you know, I know I was on somebody's Instagram or somebody's news feed 
and already probably presumed guilty when all I was doing was coming back from lunch. And being a veteran that was over in the desert and, like I said, being a black boy from the South, and now I'm holding an M16 towards Iraq, aimed towards Iraq. And I remember being a 10-year-old little boy and walking back from Piggly Wiggly for my grandma. I had a big brown bag in my arm, and this white lady came out, and she said, that black boy pulled a gun on me. When, what happened? I was 10 years old. And the interesting thing is like, she's, she just came out and said, I pulled a gun on her. And I'm telling you, they called the police and I was just walking back to my grandma's house. And I'm scared, the police come up and he's asking me, where's the gun? I tell him, I, I never touched a gun in my life. The first time I ever shot a gun was when I was in the Air Force in basic training. but. I was guilty because she said a black, the white lady said a black boy pulled a gun on me and that's him. And I had to get my, get him to go over to my grandma's house and get my grandma to come out and tell the officer that she had sent me to the grocery store over to Piggly Wiggly to get some groceries. And that's the first time me and my grandma, when she was walking home with me, that's the first time I had the talk of the world is not going to be fair to me no matter what. And now just jump forward to the beginning of that. Now here I was standing in the Middle East holding a gun. And am, I wonder, did the Iraqis think that same thing? That black boy holding a, pulled a gun on me. So, so just, it stayed with you that entire, your entire life, that one moment. Yeah. Because now I actually was the black boy pulling a gun on somebody. Omar, I want to thank you for sharing that. I had, um, I, I didn't have any idea what ex what your experience was at all because I had never heard of any events or anything like that and it seems like you had to keep it to yourself for a very long time so thank you for sharing that with the listeners you want to know something honestly that I've never shared with you before go ahead you were the reason you were the reason I retrained in the intel really when when when, when did you what do you mean you were the reason I did it because honestly when I met you and you and Honor Guard and when we were on Honor Guard together and then met you again later in, in Airman Leadership School, remember we had to get up one day and talk about our jobs and stuff? You you got up and started speaking Arabic or something at the very <laughs> I beginning. Doubt it. That's a... You said something in Arabic. Really? Like anyway. And the interesting thing about it is I saw you as, I thought you were somewhere that you were safe and you could be yourself. And I couldn't do that where I worked at. So I wanted to work in what you worked in. And honestly, from the bottom of my heart, seeing you was why I made that transition years later into that career field. Because I thought you were safe there. find out more about working with us, please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at Gaze Against Guns New York on Facebook and Instagram or gag no guns on Twitter. Also be sure to check out our website to learn more about our gag chapters located nationwide, like in Orlando, LA, DC, Chicago, San Francisco, and P-Town. Also on Facebook, we have a human beings page where we honor the lives lost to gun violence.
you can also join us at a meeting. We meet every other Thursday online now, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next meeting is Thursday, March 18th. You can find out the info on our Facebook page where we will be planning all kinds of great actions and protests, so please join us. Everybody is welcome at any and all GAG events. Another great way to get involved is by becoming a WBAI buddy. A WBAI buddy is someone who keeps our unique volunteer-run radio show going by giving a small donation every month. And just a modest monthly contribution can really help keep us on the air. Just go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 and become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. Thanks for joining us, and I will leave you this week with a poem from Omar called Camouflage Heart. And thanks for listening. You said you, uh, you're you going to leave us with a poem today? Yes. Um, through Poetic Theater Veteran Voices, um, it allowed me to create art to heal and basically tell the story I'd always wanted to tell in a poetic manner. Uh, this is a story I wrote about a couple of my experiences uh, in the military. And once I got out of the military, just coming home and dealing with the reality of America that we're in now. I call it Camouflaged Heart. War makes humans human. Conflict is universal. From the beginning, there was war. Before I was born and lifetimes afar. Battles rage as mankind ages, yet never learns from past mistakes or stories from those who live to tell of what war remains, a living hell. I had never been more present than at that very moment, standing in a desert land, hearing a foreign language I could not understand, camouflage dressed so that I could blend in. Desensitized to suffering and pain, only a camouflaged heart remained. A predator drone loitered above, waiting to dehumanize the enemy. With my weapon in hand, encircled by sand, requesting a drone strike, reports of Taliban. Drone sights locked on to an evading man left his truck in the sand, and away he ran. But with crosshairs locked on, the moving target engaged, the coordinates called in, hellfire missiles rained. Dust and blood splattered, then settled. My life forever changed. It's the things you can't see that hurt me the most, only a camouflaged heart remained. No longer a warrior, a veteran, seeking renewal and transitioning to peace. 
Still, dreams of war knock at my door. I try not to let them in. They invade, they conquer, they win. My willingness to do whatever to live outweighed my fear to die. Searching for weapons of mass destruction turned out to be a lie. The guilt that comes from surviving, isolating. Comrades did not make it back alive. Hyperventilating. My nightmares evolve into daymares. No one sees, no one cares. What I've experienced, what I've done, once an asset, now a liability. Medicate the veteran, keep him numb. In a country broken into pieces, currently, I see no peace. Constantly worried about mankind because the next man may not be kind. I deployed in defense of a nation, returned home to unemployment and discrimination. For walking while black, I've been stopped and frisked, racial profiling, the determination. Went from, went from military to civilian, lost in translation, my world flipped upside down forced reintegration. Prior discipline to post-stressed, deteriorated motivation and watching elected officials continually disrespect our veterans, oh, the ultimate humiliation. And after 12 years of honorable service, I wake up daily, a black man in America feeling nervous. And yes, I'm still in pain. You just can't see it. Only a camouflaged heart remains. Thank you.